going to be hard for me to get a real job. So yeah. I wanted to be able to continue to t invest and take these risks because the joy isn't getting the check at the end, although that doesn't suck, right? The joy is seeing all the hard work pay off. People believe and start using your stuff and being able to bring people with you along the way to join the journey. That, that, that's the real. Welcome, welcome back to the Stretch 4 Podcast. We're finally back. I'm back live from San Francisco. This is episode seven of the podcast. Thank you all for showing love and support. Uh, trying to get back to recording these regularly, but obviously trying to get to 10 podcasts is not as easy as it seems on the outside. But we're back this week with a new episode. I have an interview where I talk with Ben Lillenthal, who's the founder of Screamy. We had an interesting discussion. He's an enterprise founder, been in the game about 20 years, started about four, four companies. So we had an interesting conversation all about B2B, all about selling to the enterprise, which will be a theme for us moving forward with the interview scheduling and the interview sessions, trying to talk to founders that are building enterprise-focused companies. Additionally, on the show today, I'm going to cover a few topics that have been top of mind for me. One is just the this new stat that came out from the ethnic group where it's talking about the average household income based on ethnicity in America. And it's a quite riveting chart, especially for somebody like myself, who's an African-American living in San Francisco. Uh, so talk about that. Also talking about some founder performance focus area. Running is becoming a more important and more impactful part of my life. Planning for a half marathon here in a little more than two months and was able to go check out the air movie with my wife over the weekend. And it really brought to mind some running inspiration from Phil Knight, of all people, who is the founder CEO of Nike. Uh, he was portrayed in the movie by Ben Affleck, which I think this is another one of Ben Affleck's really good movies that he's directed. So talk a bit about that. And then we'll talk a bit of, on the parenting and the family. Sahil Bloom, who's a Twitter influencer creator, brought to mind a concept that I'd read about historically from a guy named Graham Duncan about the time billionaire, right? And focusing on like, you have pretty much a billion minutes of life to your 30, 31, I think it is. And trying to quantify that into the role of parenting, which I thought Sahil had a pretty viral post related to parenting and related to fatherhood that I want to talk about and unpack. And then we also have the interview. So the interview with Ben Lillenthal, founder of Screen Me. So excited to get started with the show. Without further ado, let's get to it. The Stretch 4 podcast is brought to you by Modern Tax. Tax season has come and gone, but the data from tax filings can be leveraged to help financial institutions make better financial decisions about their individuals and their business customers. It all starts and ends with accessing clean and reliable data. Modern Tax is a business-to-business -business intelligence platform built on the top of tax information. Through this tax information, we're able to give you insights into revenue, income, good standing, key officer, and other business information that you need on your business customers, as well as individuals. 
Modern Tax offers two products to help businesses verify both businesses and consumers for online financial services by leveraging public and private tax records. With coverage across 7 million U.S.-based businesses and millions of consumers, Modern Tax helps companies stay compliant and utilizes this alternative data set to save time, money, and increase performance. Modern Tax offers an insights platform that delivers data to you within minutes and not days or hours as it would take to get this information through traditional vendors, which have taken up to 550 days to return a report. Check out moderntax.io to find out more about the company and get a discount using Stretch4 on your first invoice. Thank you, Modern Tax, and I hope you guys enjoy this week's show. So in the first segment of this show today, I want to unpack something that hit my zeitgeist over the past few days, just breaking down the median household income in the United States for by ethnic group. And this is a pretty revealing stat, right? So if you think about it, you know, I live in the Bay Area. I'm a founder, CEO. My income has fluctuated over the past six years, really been contingent on how much venture capital I've been able to raise as a founder. And I think a lot of founders are in that position. But this chart was showing the median household income in the United States based on ethnicity. Uh, Indian Americans led lead in the U.S. at a median household income of $100,500 a year. Filipino Americans are second at 83.3 thousand a year. Taiwanese Americans are 82.5 million a year. Sri Lankan Americans are right around about 75 grand a year. And Japanese Americans are fifth at around 72,000 a year. It was very interesting for me because, I mean, I've lived in the Bay Area for now six years, and it's been a very, very interesting place to live for me because I grew up in the South. So growing up in South Carolina, and North Carolina, there wasn't really wasn't a lot of diversity when it comes to Asian and Indian Americans, uh, at least where I grew up at. It was primarily white people and black people, a little bit of Latina sprinkled in. And on this chart, it shows that white Americans are at fifty nine point nine thousand dollars on average a year and African-Americans are last on this list at thirty five thousand a year. So it really does show. And, and these are kind of how. This is kind of how I think about race, right? Socioeconomically, that is really the the biggest point of race as it pertains to this country, right? And how people are treated typically fluctuates in this country based off how much money they have. And that's an unfortunate case in the broader scope of like, how do we make everything equal? But it is a reality, right? The less money that you have, the less power you have, the less access you have to things like education, to things like vacations, leisure, knowledge, information, all those things have been highly, highly correlative to how much money you have. And so when you see how America, which how we started and how we've how we've evolved to become today, the people that I think, you know, African-Americans were a very, very big, had a very, very large impact on how this country even exists today. But we now are lagging far behind Indian Americans. And I think Indian Americans are quite interesting. So living in the Bay Area, I've met now a lot of Indian friends who are founders, CEOs, started companies, sold companies. And the velocity that they move is quite different than I would say my demographic of people as it pertains to startups. I mean, we're like African-Americans in general, 
we're typically the least funded, least exited uh, as far as companies ex- exiting for nine figures or more in the technology industry specifically. And this list is heavily correlative to tech. And I think that's another big part of this. The reason I'm talking about this on the podcast is if you think about medium household income in America, the highest earners are people that work in technology. Indian Americans generally working in an engineering space, right? And so we look at the top companies, Microsoft has an Indian CEO, Google has an Indian CEO. Many companies have large, large swaths of their C-suite and leadership team that are Indian Americans, which is tipping this number to the top. And I think you see the impact of diversity when you look at a list like this, it's like it hits you in the face. And, you know, my thing is, you know, as a founder, you know, I set out to be a founder because I believe it gives me the best opportunity to have some form of, you know, exit. But I also think from a salary perspective, if you think about the average CEO salary, it's about $130,000 a year. And when you look at this list, you see demographically, there probably are less Black Americans or African-Americans that are CEOs of companies, which negatively affects their ranking on this list. So the compounding effect of being Black in America as it pertains to wealth is why I think technology, even in a time where it seems like technology is cooling, the markets have been cooling towards technology companies, there's been mass layoffs. It's not been a better time for people of color, people from African-American backgrounds, people from uh, Hispanic and Latino backgrounds to start building companies. And, you know, we're last on this list, speaking of Hispanic, Latino Americans and African-Americans. And I think it's really, really a critical time for us to start building and creating companies. And so this is just a call for companies. If you are African-American or if you are Hispanic, I would love to talk to you personally, individually. How do we make this list better? How do we improve our ranking? How do we move up the list? And how do we use technology to do that? I think that's going to be a really big premise of a lot of the things that I do and my why and answering to, you know, why I do what I do, why this podcast exists. I would say that, you know, outside of building a safe space and a safe content medium for founders to be transparent would be to build a safe space and a safe medium for African-American founders and Hispanic Americans to talk about how we break the kind of economic strongholds that we see that exist here today in 2023. So this list is something I'm really thinking about. And I think it really gives me a why and a destination, especially now as a you know father of a African-American child and my son is biracial, how do we you know figure this out? And so it's a really big problem, I think. And so I'm looking to talk to people who are looking to help resolve this. So another, moving on to maybe more positive energy on the podcast. I did get a chance to do a date night with the wife this past weekend. We were able to go check out the Air movie, which was directed by Ben Affleck. And it really pinpoints the story of how Nike was able to sign Michael Jordan in the 80s. And it highlights Sonny Vaccaro, who's been well known as a pioneer of, of, of amateur basketball and playing a role inside Nike to get Michael Jordan as a signature athlete to what became the Jordan brand and now has a $4 billion a year business that Nike does with that business. It just prints money, you know, even 30, 40 years later. The movie did have a compelling part for me that stuck out because I am obviously becoming a 
mid thirties runner, I guess you could say, or someone who's trying to run competitively. I'm going to do a half marathon later this year. I've been preparing for it for past few months. And Phil Knight, who was the founder CEO of Nike at the time, was notoriously a runner. He was a runner at University of Oregon back in his college days. And he had some very interesting quotes. Ben Affleck played Phil Knight in the movie and got me thinking about Shoe Dog, which is a book I read probably in 2016 or so before I moved out to the Bay. But he had a quote from the book that was really relevant to the movie. So I'll read that quote. He says that, I thought back on my running career at Oregon. I'd competed with and against men far better, faster, and more physically gifted. Many were future Olympians. And yet I trained myself to forget this unhappy fact. People reflexively assume that competition is always a good thing, that it always brings out the best in people. But that's only true of people who can forget the competition. Art of competing, I'd learned from track, was the art of forgetting. And I now reminded myself of that fact. You must forget your limits. You must forget your doubts, your pains, your past. You must forget that internal voice screaming, begging, not one more step. And when it's not possible to forget it, you must negotiate with it. I thought over all the races in which my mind wanted one thing and my body wanted another. Those laps in which I had to tell my body, yes, you raised some excellent points, but let's keep going anyway. And so I thought that was a very pertinent and relevant story to my life in a lot of levels, but specifically from the running capacity, right? Trying to become a amateur runner. My goal is to do anywhere between a nine, a nine and a half minute mile on average to a low, low 10 minute mile for this first half marathon. Yesterday I got my ass kicked because I ran when it was pretty windy in the Bay Area. So it's it's a much different experience when you're running against the wind in the Bay Area. It's like you can't really run as fast as you want. But I think I feel that. And I think running is a very, very strong corollary factor to being a founder, building a venture-backed company, specifically in these times where fundraising is very hard. Sales is hard. Hiring is actually not as hard as it's been historically, but being able to have and hire people who are going to trust that you're able to build a company, raise money, and endure is really, really hard. And every day gets harder because, you know, we're in a time where on one hand, technology is moving fast as it ever has with, with AI and artificial intelligence and compute. But on the other hand, there hasn't been a public tech IPO in almost 18 months. And many of the companies that went public prior are down 90% or more. So it's a very glim hope that you're going to build this rocket launched or a rocket ship company. While on the other side, you still got to get up and do your job every day and continue to return to the basis. So I thought that was a very interesting gem. It was something that I kind of caught on and like remember reading that book, which was very, very popular book at the time, but didn't just see this movie reflecting on kind of how Nike became who they became. It was very, very clear that Phil Knight was using sports as an analogy to building out his business. And it really showed, it showed a, a lot in the movie. So that's a good movie to go check out. First movie I think I've gotten to see in quite some time, maybe since Black Panther. And me and Whitney enjoyed it. But that is some inspiration for the people here that are listening to the podcast. Last but not least on the show today, we'll hop into the kids corner where I'll give some insights on parenting. This week was very interesting. I found a very interesting 
tweet storm from Sahil Bloom, who's very popular on Twitter. He talked about the concept of time billionaire, which I had historically read about in the article from Graham Duncan, which I'll link in the show notes. Graham Duncan is just a very notorious investor who's a great writer, but he reads this. A billion seconds is slightly over 31 years. When I see sometimes 20-year-olds, the thought I had was they probably had 2 billion seconds left, but they are relating to themselves as time billionaires. The point, time is our most precious asset. When you're young, you're literally a time billionaire, rich with time. Too many people fail to realize the value of this asset until it's gone. Treat time as as your ultimate currency. It's all you have and you can can never get it back. And this, you know, was very, it's very timely, ironically, Uh, you know, obviously becoming a parent in the past year. My son's now 13 months old. Talk to a lot of founders in the podcast. We always have a segment where we talk about if they're a parent, they highlight, you know, how they balance their parenting life with being a venture back you know, growth at all costs founder. And I think this time billionaire concept is one that's very good to think about because over time, like this past weekend, there's a lot of things that historically on my weekends, it was not a negotiation. Every hour, every minute wasn't a negotiation when you don't have kids. And so a lot of my friends that don't have kids, you know, your weekends are really fun right now. It's spring, you're traveling, you're doing all these awesome things. And now I see, you know, me and my wife, we reflect on, you know, we sometimes miss those times because you're now, it's very hard on the weekends, harder during the week, harder on the weekends and in the week, because you have childcare during the week, if you're blessed and lucky enough to have it. But on the weekends, you know, it's just you and your kid and you got to really, you know, think about that time and, and spend it well. And you know, there was an interesting chart that Sahil linked to talking about time spent with children where, you know, when you're 15, you're 18, you're in your 20s, it's very low. And then it kind of peaks when you get into your 30s, right? And then and then it kind of wanes off, you know, in the back half of your 40s and 50s when your kids likely are going off to school or they're growing up. And it's really important to optimize the time with your kids. The more and more I talk to other parents that have kids are older than me, then it's like, or older than mine, it's like, it gets better that first year, the first few years are very difficult. And I feel that way. You know, I feel that way on the weekends when I want to work on this newsletter, I want to work on a podcast, or I want to do some catch up work, or maybe I just want to go to the gym. Everything is very constrained because me and my wife, Whitney, we, that's our full responsibility. And so if we want to do things, it's like a negotiation, but I appreciate it. And I appreciate the context of being a parent and having to be way more ruthless with my time and where I spend it and what I commit to. But really, you know, thinking of it as a time billionaire snapshot, you know, there's another book that I've referenced as well, historically about the you know, 10,000 hours. When you try to, when you really quantify how much time you had on earth or how much time you have with your kids, it really puts life in perspective. And it really makes you be become more efficient with it, with that time that you have. It's short allotments of it. So you have to be very, very productive. And I think the founder life is no different than any other career. But I think it does. It does. There is a very much of a conflict of interest at times, right, where you want to crank out work, you want to get work done, you want to be in the work mindset, but your son or your daughter needs you and I will say, you know, the time that you spend with your children, at least in those early ages, it's not like necessarily the most intimate time, right? Like I'm changing my son's diaper. I'm trying to 
soothe him when he's cranky. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm holding him. All those things are very intimate to me, but in the grand scheme of things, they're just short spots in the life in your day. And you think you can think you can imagine way more productive stuff that you could be doing. But I think it's it's important to have a reflective very standpoint and think back that those times are fleeting, right? And that you know eventually they're going to be at an age where they won't want to be held by you as much. I mean, my son's even going through that phase now and time is all you have essentially. And so th- those are, this was a good point that I think Salil brought to, to light, definitely linked this tweet and just looking at the charts of like how the time, you know, phase fades, <laughs> you know, and like your time spent alone increases over time as your other time decreases. Right. So it's like, thinking about how time is very, very conclusive. And I think a lot of times as founders, you know, we can get caught up in the weeds of, of life and the, 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 the grind of being a founder. I think somebody was talking about, you know, 60% of your work is really just handling monotonous tasks and things that just kind of keep the lights on and keep the bills getting paid. And then the 40%, you get to do creative, high productive stuff. But I think parenting is similar, right? A lot of parenting at least in those early years, is just the grind. And you're trying to figure out how to assess it and how to, to to curate it in a way that works. And then eventually, quickly, it could become completely different. But stay the course, stay grinding. I'll link this article. Uh, I think it's really important to think about time as you start and build companies and assess it if you have family. If you don't, same as well. Like a lot of people I hear People are getting married, it's big time with wedding season, kids season. Everything does quite change when when those little bundles of joys come into your life. And I think it's important to cherish it, but it's also important to think about the, the finite time that you'll have when, when moments and times get frustrating. This episode of the Stretch 4 podcast is brought to you by Deal. Ready to take the next step in your hiring journey? You found the global talent you need, but need to onboard them? Deal can help. Their expert team can guide you to hiring quickly, compliantly in over 150 countries at your fingertips with compliant contracts, top local legal experts, global payroll solutions, and more. And that's just the beginning. It's time you got your hands on their free international compliance handbook, which will be linked to in the show notes. To find out more, deal to help you hire globally and increase your bandwidth of where you can hire talented engineering, product, as well as other industry leaders in your teams. Thanks a lot to Deal for supporting independent media with the Stretch 4 podcast. So here we are today. Welcome to the Stretch 4 podcast, where we talk to some of the most innovative and successful entrepreneurs specifically here in Silicon Valley. Today's episode is sure to be a treat. Our guest has founded not one, two, three, or four startups, in, but he's founded four startups in 20 years. He's faced challenges like many founders. He's ran out of money. He's had customers not renew, and he's even dealt with vendors stealing his intellectual property. But he's come out on top, and he's continued to remain in the game. So we'll talk today about his company, his lifestyle, how he looks and approaches life. But happy to welcome Ben Lillenthal to the Stretch 4 podcast, CEO and founder of ScreenMe. Ben, how are you doing today? Good. Great to be here, Matt. Th- thank you so much for the opportunity to share and t- tell my story. Awesome. Ben, thank you so much for coming out and coming on the podcast. It's a treat to have you today. And I think there's a lot for us to talk about. So Ben, you're currently building ScreenMe, but here on the Stretch 4 podcast, we're busy founders. And so one of the primary things that I think a lot of founders as they move into their 
childbearing years, so to speak, into their, you know, from their 20s to their 30s to their 40s is family. So I understand, Ben, you have two young children there at the home. How has parenting, and you have two young children, so it's really impacting, really a good question for you. How has having those young children really impacted the way you approach your journey as an entrepreneur and as a founder? Yeah, I, I mean, great question. I think that having children teaches you patience, perseverance, and how to operate under exhaustion. And I, the most underrated aspect of being an entrepreneur is having the long-term patience. Because everyone wants, they've seen the movies, they read the blogs, they want to get rich quick. They think this happens overnight. You're come up with a great idea, you get somebody to code it, you put it in the market, boom, you know, you're the next Facebook. And the reality is, you know, that happens once in a decade to a handful of companies. The rest of us, it's a lot of hard work. Turns out raising children, being a present and effective parent, it's a lot of hard work. You just have to show up every day and do the work. And and I think I think being a parent is a little bit like being a not the not the startup phase of entrepreneurship, but the actual operational phase. You you have product market fit. You're rolling out the business. That's what parenting is, right? You, you never know if your kid's going to be happy or crying. You got to change a diaper, or you're going to be jumping off the monkey bars, right? And so, a, a little bit of flexibility, but a lot of patience and perseverance. I think is the is is the learning there. That's that's interesting. And so you approached it patience and perseverance. How do you design your life around your kids as well as your work? I know we all kind of came out of the pandemic. I became a new father here post-pandemic last year. Your children are, are young. Um, thank you. And how how did, how have you kind of dealt with it through that part of the process? And now as we kind of go back to normal, which, you know, basically trying to get back to pre-pandemic work-life settings, people are in the office more, people are expected to be places more so than not specifically in a tech world, how is your how is your schedule aligned for you to kind of do everything you need to do as a CEO founder and as well as a parent? And where does the where do you see the the, the friction? Yeah, I I'm just thinking about it. I, I I would question the assertion that the world is going back to pre-pandemic normal. Because I, I think and especially in places like tech, the pandemic is as transformational as the cloud. This ability to kind of work from anywhere being just part of the culture. Like, I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when I would take conference calls, not from my office, I couldn't tell anyone, right? Now, nobody expects you to be in the office 40, 50 hours a week. So, you know, I think I, th I think what the pandemic has done, what the post-pandemic world, and again, I, you know, I'm my own boss, so I don't have to be in the office at certain hours, but I think it's created a little more flexibility. I try and be home and spend quality time with my kids every day. And, and I think it's important. I think it's important. Given the global nature of our business, you know, I'll do a lot of calls after they go to bed, before they wake up in the morning. And then I, I do leave the house and go to work because I do think that separation, it is important you have a work brain and a home brain, a workplace and a home place. 
trying to, even when I had startups and nobody worked from home, after the first six months, I had to get out of my house. I had to get out of my apartment. I just couldn't untangle the threads. So I think having kids, it sort of forces that discipline to be home, be present, and then go to work and be present. And so to, to make that separation kind of thing between church and state. Mm-hmm. Too, too, too many early stage founders, and I was one of them, they're young, they're enthusiastic, they can't turn it off. It's actually really important to force yourself to turn it off because you, you, actually, you actually are better at your job if you're not doing it 24-7. I believe. That's, an, that's, a, that's a very interesting standpoint. I, I like interviewing people you know, that are further along than me, whether that is career, experience, age, anything. And so you bring up a good point of being able to turn it off specifically when you have young children at home, you kind of are forced to turn it off because you can't be present with them and be tuned into work and you cause that conflict of interest. What's interesting about your story, Ben, is you have been now a four-time founder and you, interesting enough, feel like you know you, you became a founder after getting fired from your first job out of college. Talk a bit about your journey of becoming a founder and you know, kind of as you've established and learned this over time of how you have to have this separation of church and state, how has it allowed you to be, continue to be a founder, continue to be your own boss as opposed to failing and going back to corporate America or these other things that a lot of times people have to go back and forth? How have you been able to consistently remain a founder and leader of a company? Yeah, well... The entrepreneurial career path is, I believe, is a function of your personality. So most people probably shouldn't start or work in early stage companies. That, but, but if you're built a certain way, if you see the world a certain way, if you're able to do it and be successful, it's very addictive and rewarding. And so so you know I was I was fortunate enough to get fired from a job in the late 90s just as the internet was getting commercialized and I had a job in my hometown in northern Virginia Reston Virginia which you know not to go back 30 years but was really the physical center of the internet so all of this innovation was happening in my sleepy little suburb in northern Virginia that 5 years ago there was nothing there so I came back from college. I'm like, what are all these buildings? Who are all these people? What's going on? And just because I'm a curious person by nature, I started, you know, pulling at threads. And the next thing you knew, you know, I was in the basement of my of where I had a job building them a website with the yellow HTML for dummies book from Barnes and Noble. And so when it turned out that this consulting company wanted me to stay for five years, but all I wanted to do was get out of Reston. I said, well, I bet you other people are going to need websites. And so that sort of, you know, we started a web design company. And then I, you know, very quickly had this idea, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you could put email on a web page and people could just go there and get their email. And then, you know, six months later, this thing called Hotmail gets launched. So just very early into it, learning as I went and realizing this is actually really fun. It's really fun because you get to do different things. And you get to learn and you sort of learn from your mistakes and you kind of keep keep failing up is kind of, you know, the motto here. So so that part's very addictive. And then, hey, when you actually get customers and they're happy and they refer you to other clients, well, that, that, then you can build a business. Right. So you go from the intellectual satisfaction to the sort of professional and financial 
rewards. Being able to do it repeatedly involves a couple things. One, it involves the ability to actually manage a group of people, which is not easy. It involves the ability to come up, consistently be able to come up with things that are relevant in the market and are not too early and not too late. You know, and then three, sort of have access to capital and know when it's time to take an exit or grow the business. So some of that stuff is surprisingly not that hard if you've been in the market long enough. But but sort of navigating those cycles, navigating those kind of growth curves, I don't know. It's it, it it's a little bit, it's more art than science. And it's just like anything, it's making the best decision under uncertainty. There is no perfect decision. I think that's part of the art of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, you know, whether you're Ben Lilienthal running small early stage SaaS companies or you're Elon Musk buying Twitter for 10 times more than it's worth, right? You're just making the best decision that you can at the time. And Ben, and you actually, it's interesting. I went to James Madison University, so I'm familiar with the Northern Virginia area, which is like the sleepy place. But I'm assuming when you got started, it was it was like, where everything was happening with AOL and all those things. How did you how did you end up in the Bay Area through that journey yeah. over time and what brought you west? Yeah, I, I never wanted to live in Silicon Valley. I was like, I work with those people I never want to hang out with. So I ended up in New York City for 12 years, had done a startup in Northern Virginia, was successful, moved to New York, did another one, sold it to a big enterprise software company called Citrix. That was had a division called Go to Meeting. They were based in Santa Barbara, all that kind of stuff. And and what happened was I I kind of didn't know what else to do. You know, I sort of said, okay, well I've done this now a couple times, and each one has done fine. But sort of like if you really want to prove yourself in show business, you move to Hollywood. And so I sort of said, well, if I'm really going to prove myself in tech, I now have enough credibility where I'm not just going to move out to the Bay Area and just be another guy. I'll have some networks and I'll have some folks. Turns out I moved up here. Moved out here and I was just some other guy with a without a job and trying to figure out what to do next. So, you know, I just kind of, I just figured it was worth a shot. And I had been successful in two businesses. And so I could afford to take a year or two and just check it out, right? I didn't sell my apartment in New York. I didn't ship all my stuff out. I was just kind of out here po- poking around. And the thing that is unique to the Bay and you know, there's always the latest headline, you know, San Francisco's, you know, the worst city in the world, turns out it's one of the best cities in the world, um, is the aggregation of talent here. There are the smartest sort of tech people from all over the world congregate here. And so I met my co-founder and CTO who had actually moved out here from Boston, you know, 10 years before I did. And he's one of those, is one of these sort of genius engineers, right? He is the 10x unicorn CTO, you put him in any room, he's the smartest geek in the room. And so that that that's part of our secret sauce, right? We, we've got very, very smart Valley people involved in this business from the beginning. And, and that attracts other high caliber, very intelligent, very capable engineers, salespeople, marketing people, all of that. So I, so I, I think the thing that Silicon Valley doesn't do well, which it should, is position itself as like, this is where smart, hardworking people come to meet other smart, hardworking people. And it's true. And it's true. I mean, ScreenMeet is a perfect, we would not be where we were if I had stayed in New York or if I was doing this in Reston. You just don't have the level of talent. 
and, and even post pandemic, when lots of people have now left the Bay Area, you still can attract that high, the highest caliber of talent anywhere in the world because pe smart people want to work with other really smart people. So, so anyways, I ended up here kind of on a whim, but in hindsight, it looks like it was intentional. Mm -hmm. And it certainly made Screen Me better than it would have been otherwise. And and with Screen Me, it's a B2B product from my understanding. We can definitely talk about it a little bit more in depth here later in the interview. But talk about building your brand and kind of aligning it with kind of what the internet is today, right? We've seen now lots of meeting softwares have come through the pipeline. Actually, in my first business, I remember using GoToMeeting. Yep. Obviously, Zoom has came along. Now you have AI and you have a proliferation of companies that are building these new kind of video experiences. Talk a bit about the being in an industry and seeing it go up and down and continue to, you know, you continue to stake your claim there. How do you how do you continue to stay on the up and up with innovation as it pertains to yeah. these industries yeah. that seem like they're changing almost overnight? Yeah. So no, great. So so let me just give you the quick 30 seconds. So Screen Meet is the real-time collaboration platform that's embedded in Salesforce and ServiceNow and provides screen sharing, video calling, co-browsing, remote desktop takeover, all, all of the stuff that's collaboration, but not meetings necessarily. And so, so the business, the business I sold to Citrix became part of this division called Citrix Online, which was go to meeting, go to assist, go to my PC, go to webinar. They coined the term webinar. And, you know, I had built the audio infrastructure for all of that. And so having hung out there for a couple of years, I knew a couple things that nobody else in the world knows, except for maybe, you know, Eric at Zoom, because he was the CTO at WebEx. And, and one of those things is that there are a bunch of applications that are not meetings that really require kind of specific workflows or specific apps. And then the second thing is that those meeting products, those legacy meeting products, even the WebExes of the world, the GoToMeetings, they were SaaS, but they weren't cloud. And so that small distinction is, is, is literally the value prop of ScreenMeet. So, so if you're SaaS, it means you run on the internet. But if you're cloud, it means you do all the compute on the network. And so when GoToMeeting and WebEx started, internet, uh, bandwidth was expensive, servers were expensive, there was no AWS. And so with ScreenMeet, we said, well, we're going to build, you know, go to my PC and things like go to assist, some of those kind of more niche applications, but we're going to build them in AWS and the browser will be the endpoint. You're not going to need desktop software on both sides. So that was the first kind of aha realization. And then the second one, which turns out to be more important, but we came to it second was these large platforms have won the enterprise. Salesforce, ServiceNow, Microsoft Dynamics, you know, Zendesk is a little down market, Genesis in the contact center. And so if you're going to offer sort of a collaboration solution for a department like the IT help desk or the contact center, well, you better embed it in the platform that they use to run their business every day. And most people even now, 10, you know, ScreenMate's now eight years old, we're still one of the only real natively embedded collaboration platforms. The legacy competitor who we replaced, a lot of ServiceNow customers, it's a 28-page manual to embed their software. Ours is one page and it takes 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So because we're built in the cloud and ServiceNow is built in the cloud, you know, it's kind of putting those two pieces of software together. 
took a little bit of work, but it doesn't take a lot of work. And for the end user, it's just an app that you load into a sandbox. So, so those two things being the cloud disruptor and embedding into those major platforms, that's what's driving our business. And we've got, I don't know, 5% of the Fortune 500 as customers. Some, you know, a lot, right? D- double yep. digit Fortune 500 customers mm-hmm. using ScreenMeet inside of Salesforce and ServiceNow, which is crazy, right? We're this tiny yeah. little software company, but but it's one, we're just getting started. Two, the functionality we deliver is that important. And three, because we're embedded in the platforms. Oh, and also Salesforce and ServiceNow have invested in us. Yeah. We're just not a big risk. There's no downside, right? We're, it's easy for them to buy us, consume us, deploy us, and we scale because we're in 14 mm-hmm. AWS data centers globally, right? Yeah. So and you so, and you built you've been in this world now for 20 plus years. 20 plus years. How today? What what's the like what's your if I ask you like what's the state of the market today? Like I'm seeing a lot of companies. I'm actually funny enough talking about kids, founder of a company called Nanit now has a company called Val, which is like a AI-powered Zoom-type product. Obviously, there's Zoom, which, you know, we're on Riverside, which is a podcaster's app. Where do you think the state of the market is with with it? Do you think that players like you all are the only ones that can really win just because you're natively integrated with those large systems? Or will there be an incumbent that comes and takes over the whole meeting experience like because for me it's like i'm in different apps a lot as a small startup you know we we have things that are you know but i'm primarily in zoom day to day but i obviously know a lot of my customers which you know in my day job i sell to enterprise fortune 500 companies and they're all on microsoft teams for the most part right so where where do you see this this race ending up is there going to be a lot of players that are that are involved here obviously we're all remote now so there's a lot of questions to be asked about where this space is going and you've been around it 20 years i'd love to understand where you think where you think a couple things it it is not a winner take all market right there there there's always been multiple players in different segments and that will continue i mean there's still a lot of webex you know zoom obviously kind of emerged teams but but that's just the meeting side of collaboration what we do is we're sort of the we're the other we're the non-sexy part that no one's really cares about where it's i can get on your computer and fix it i can see what you're doing in my website you can hold up your camera from your phone to your toaster and the person in the contact center at breville can tell you hey matt it looks like the plug on the back is broken or unplugged and and so there's all of these kind of they're almost the utility applications of collaboration that you'll never nobody knows our brand because it's branded by the largest PC manufacturer in the world and three of the largest software companies in the world and the largest you know the fanciest toaster and espresso maker right because they they want to own that experience with the customer and so that there will be other entrants there have to be right that's how capitalism works. But there's such a plethora of use cases and it's a growing market because, I don't know, more and more people are doing stuff online, right? I mean, I mean that, that's the thing about the pandemic that I really think has people haven't internalized. We did 10 year, you know, how do, why did all these software companies grow so fast and then have to cut everyone? They did 10 years of growth in three years and then things stopped growing as fast. But but they they grew 
right? They grew, you know, these, they were normally growing 15% a year, right? They grew 150% in three years because people are consuming stuff digitally at a much faster rate than they were. And so all of the contact, all of the support technology is catching up with that. AI is part of it. There's been a huge push to something called deflection in the contact center, which is, you know, FAQs and, you know, sort of like when you call United and you're stuck in IVR hell, and then you just, we're we're one of the tools when you press zero and you get to a real person, that's when we come in. And historically, you know, over the last, I don't know, whatever, eight, 10 years, deflection's gotten up to about 70% of calls are now handled by something on the website or a chat bot or a whatever. And maybe AI gets you another five or 10%. But last I checked, you know, contact centers are still hiring. More, because more and more people are coming online and doing stuff remotely, even if AI gets up, just the number of people who are doing stuff digitally instead of in person keeps growing. You know, one of our big customers is H&R Block. There's an H&R Block on every friggin' strip mall in every corner. Guess what? Do you think they're investing in more H&R Block stores? Or more tools on the HR Block website, right? I mean, that's a yeah. That's an interesting. That, that, that interesting. I got my got my start in that industry, and we were using you know products like yours in our locations in the physical offices where those are real time experiences. You're trying to troubleshoot some software. You're trying to figure out how to log in. You've got your password. So I definitely understand there. And and from your perspective. Maybe as we kind of come down and, and close the podcast, a lot of people listen to this show that are founders or I guess interested in, in starting companies. You know, you've done it now four times. You've been in this industry over 20 years. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, and at the top, being able to access capital is it's usually important. But you've also chosen to sell to large enterprise customers. Maybe talk a bit about the differentiation for going after bigger Fortune 500 companies as opposed to going down market, specifically now as the markets seem to be contracting, so to speak, as far as SaaS and new technologies that are being bought by you know companies is, is maybe going down or it's going up, but in a different, you know, light, you know, it's very hard to see. Like deals aren't closing as fast maybe. How how have you approached it through the yeah, through this yeah. time? Yeah. Well c- c- couple couple things to unpack. One, the number one job of an entrepreneur is to not run out of money. That's your, that's your only job, whether you do that by not hiring people or raising enough capital to have more runway than you think. Your only job is to not run out of money. Everything else is secondary. So however you access that capital and deploy it, just don't run out, right? Because especially in markets like this, money is very expensive. It'll be cheap again, but it's not going to be soon, right? It could be a year, it could be two years. Selling to the enterprise is hard is hard and it takes a long time and it's expensive. We were fortunate in that, you know, one of our first 20 customers, one of the largest hardware manufacturers in the world, just, you know, they were doing a massive digital transformation project on Salesforce and they were missing a key piece of cloud technology until they met us. So because we were able to close, deploy, and renew this large enterprise customer, you know, it gave us credibility with other large enterprise customers. Um, And yes, we got fucking lucky, right? You know, what luck is, you know, hard work meets preparation or something, you know, you know, and so 
that that and we but when we knew it we said look it, this this contract will either die or will make the company and it took 18 months of really hard work to get everything you know humming along perfectly we get our error rate is like one basis you know we get 0.01 tickets for every you know it's like it's crazy right for every million sessions we get 10 tickets right it's like there, it it works at a global scale and because we you know, every com- every business in the world wants to sell the enterprise, but it's a lot. Most startups sell to the SMB and work their way up. In the words of one of our advisors, we sort of teleported to the top of Mount Everest. And so we want to stay up there, right? Because large enterprises, they have money, they renew, they're sticky, and they grow. And what does every SaaS company want, right? Land, renew, and expand. And so, and so we're able to sell larger deals you know, our ACV is north of $100,000 because we sell to these big, big companies and we have the credibility now. Having landed one, we now have, you know, dozens. You know, name, brand, Fortune 500 companies use our software every day. And how, and do, you, uh, how, do, you design, how do you design this protocol to land that one large enterprise deal? I think a lot of companies you struggle get lucky. with just getting that one. So it's getting you get lucky. You you, you, you you know what you do. You know what you do, Matt. You you fly in a middle seat to Vegas. Mm-hmm. You stand at a trade show booth, <laughs> and by the third show, you hope that somebody from a big company needs your stuff. Wow. But that's the point where you have to have patient capital to to last, so you can last, right? Because because you're not, you know, we. God, I mean, our first five thousand dollars of revenue was through twenty dollar a month, you know, Google Play sales. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's no way you're going to, you know, unless you, <laughs> unless you're Snapchat, right. You're not going to, you know, so, so you have to have the patience, you have to have the conviction and you have to have the perseverance to show up yeah. even though no one seems to give a shit. And then finally mm-hmm. one day they do. And then guess what? Mm-hmm. It takes another five years to go from one large enterprise to 20 of them. Yeah. But then hopefully to go from 20 to a hundred takes Three years, you know, you, you do get some momentum and some scale, but we're eight years in, you know, we're one percent penetrated in the global market, mm-hmm. and we're just getting started. And that's the perseverance thing. That's the perfect yeah. perseverance. Yeah, that's, that's 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 very that's very deep. And I think a lot of founders will find value from that. Just you know, having to go through these cycles. Uh, last last thing I want to talk about. Sorry, 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 one, one, one last thing before. Yep. One of the stats I saw recently, like from some private equity thing, is most of the value in tech gets created after the first decade. So think about that. It takes 10 years just to get on base. But people who really hit grand home, you know, look at Salesforce, right? It took them 15 years to go public and then another 15 years to be worth a quarter of a trillion dollars, you know? So just the idea that it's a get rich slow kind of game. Definitely. I, that's a very interesting stat. And I, I mean, I'm six years into my current company and I feel like that's the that's the way it, it is. You know, you have to go in and really get lucky and figure out a, a area that's interesting. From a founder perspective, we're talking about longevity, get rich slow. Money is a factor, I think, for a lot of founders. Maybe if you don't come from means, maybe if you had to kind of get it out the mud, so to speak. What are your principles there as far as money? Seems like you were able to generate some exits early. You were able to kind of take more risk after you have had some success. Chat a bit about that and kind of how, you know, obviously startups found, you know, companies themselves have to keep money in the bank to keep operations flowing. 
how does that impact you personally and being able to take these risks, being able to go long, you know, obviously with the family and kids living in the Bay Area is not cheap. How have you been able to mitigate that and, and, and make make decisions that are able to allow you to kind of take these big risks and go long? Yeah, I mean, money, like, you know, there's like another interesting stat that like, like there a certain amount of money gets you, you get, you don't have to worry about making your like rent. But then between that and a private jet, it doesn't matter how much money you have because you're not, it's not gonna make you any happier. It's not gonna make your life any easier. It's not gonna, if you're an asshole, you're still gonna be an asshole. If you're a good guy, you're still gonna be a good guy. So it's like, there's sort of a baseline that like, where you can take risks. And above that, it's just, do you care about conspicuous consumption or you don't? And I clearly don't. So, you know, I've always thought of money, it's like, it's a means to an end, right? In this case, it's a means to me being able to take professional risk while maintaining family and personal security. It's a means for me to be able to do interesting nonprofit, social good, legislative policy, run candidates against Devin Nunez in the Central Valley because he's one of the worst of the Trumpers, while still maintaining kind of no risk on my personal lifestyle, right? You know, there's enough food on the table. I can pay my mortgage and go on vacation. So so the, very early on, again, it's one of those kind of cliche lines, but like money is just a way of keeping score. Who, who really cares until you can fly private? And then are you really going to do that anyways? Probably not. Right. But so so, yes, I, I was fortunate to like be in the right place at the right time, work hard enough to get lucky enough to put some money in the bank very young. And then I just never wanted to lose it, mm-hmm. you know, because I because I, I knew it was going to be hard for me to get a real job. So yeah. I wanted to be able to continue to t- invest and take these risks because the joy isn't getting the check at the end, although that doesn't suck. Right. The joy is seeing all the hard work pay off. People believe and start using your stuff and being able to bring people with you along the way to join the journey. That's the real win. Mm-hmm. So, so I, you know, I mean, trust me, like money is good. I'm not like, but I'm the worst capitalist you'll ever meet. Like, I think a billionaire is really a policy failure. Like, I don't think, I think the goal role of government is to redistribute wealth, like all that stuff. I believe, right. But, but I work hard and I start my own businesses and, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say no, but mm-hmm. it's not the main driver. Not the main driver. Not the main, the main the thing. Main you know, it's, it's, it's nice. It's nice. You know, I wouldn't do it for free. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I don't know, maybe not the answer most people give you. But. No, it's an interesting, interesting perspective to take. Cause I think it's like, uh, I feel the same way at times where money is, it definitely can't be the main driver to do these things, especially when we're talking. Yeah, this, this job's too hard. But yeah, you, you can go be an asshole eye banker and make 10 times more than, you know, what we'll make unless or until we get lucky at the end. Right. Yeah. No, that, that's that's 100 percent true. Well, Ben, Ben Lilenthal, it's been a great time uh, chatting with you and learning about your story with Scream Meat. How can uh, folks listening to this podcast find out about you and more about Screen Meat if they're a large enterprise uh, employee? Contact center uh, well, service organization is that the primarily that's the type of people that are looking at your solution is those contact center leads people that are you know dealing with trying to implement something like this into a a, a system a service now or Salesforce system primarily. Yeah, you either run your contact center on Salesforce, or your IT help desk on ServiceNow, or just another piece of software that makes that whole workflow 
more efficient. Screenmeet.com or my email is ben, B-E-N, at screenmeet.com. And I will get back to you. Um, we're, we're... And what conferences would they be able to find you at if they're out in the wild? Yeah, sure. In this Sure, we'll, we'll be at, at the t- Technology Services World Show in Orlando next month. ServiceNow Knowledge in Vegas in a few weeks. You know, come to our party at Dreamforce in September. Matt, you're local. You'll have to drop by. But so we're, you know, we're at a lot of those ServiceNow and Salesforce type events, industry events. Got you. Events are always key and it's been a good good to see events coming back. I, I know, especially for the enterprise sales folks. I mean, right here in San Francisco, what RSA is going on and it's pretty much taking over downtown. So that is an exciting time for us enterprise B2B founders, but it's been great having you on the show, Ben. Thanks a lot for your story. This is all for the Stretch 4 podcast today. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, Matt. And that concludes Stretch 4 podcast episode seven. Thank you for Ben coming on the show. Thank you for our sponsor, Deal. Again, that's D-E-E-L.com. Check them out for your global payroll needs. Also, if you're listening to the podcast and you made it this far, you should check out our newsletter. Our newsletter can be found at stretch4.substack.slash subscribe, where we come out with weekly newsletters and weekly podcasts focused on the tech industry from a different perspective, primarily focusing on the perspective of founders. Also, check out our previous episodes. We can found Apple or Spotify. We talk with founders as well as I have presentations that I do on those podcasts as well. If you're looking to find out anything more about me, the host, Matt Parker, also founder and CEO of Modern Tax, will be doing a seven-minute presentation at the Finnovate Conference here in San Francisco in May. We are also looking for new guests to be on the podcast. So if you're a founder or you know a founder who has a primarily a B2B startup focused on selling to the enterprise, we'd love to talk with them and chat with them on the show. Also, if you are a business and you're looking to sponsor the podcast, if you're looking to get access to over 2,500 business business operators, founders, CEOs, check us out and email Matt at stretch4.co. Again, that's Matt at stretch4.co. Look forward to hearing from you all and thank you for listening. Peace.